Ben Trish McGregor welcome you to a place where all kinds of phenomena flourish. Voices whisper, ancient secrets, signs and symbols are abundant. UFOs, ETs, ghosts, and even the dead move about freely. Here we meet authors, researchers, and investigators of the mysterious, the strange, and of the inexplicable anomalies that surround us. Step out of the everyday world and take a journey into the mystical underground. This is Rob McGregor and Trish McGregor. We're and our dogs. <laughs> we're going to be talking about the Bermuda Triangle today with a special guest, Bruce Gernon. If you've ever watched any of the Bermuda Triangle documentaries, you've probably seen Bruce. He's appeared in dozens of them, and many of them feature his incredible survival journey through the heart of the Bermuda Triangle. But before we introduce Bruce, we'll start with some uh, news from the Bermuda Triangle. As anyone with any interest in this subject knows, there's a cottage industry in documentaries about the famed mysterious triangle. Documentary producers from all over the world come to South Florida, usually in the winter, to film their take on the Bermuda Triangle. It seems there is a never-ending fascination with uh, stories of mysterious disappearances of lost ships and aircrafts. Some of the documentaries try to solve the enigma, and some just explore the disappearances and look at different possibilities from human error and bad weather to UFOs and interdimensional portals. One British uh, commentator talking uh, about that last theory had a lovely accent that sounded like he was saying interdimensional <laughs> potholes. Uh, he, he might be onto something there. But the theory that uh, we'll be talking about with Bruce is called electronic fog, uh, a very charged subject. But uh, first, the news. We're now moving from one-episode documentaries to, into documentary series this year with the start of a show called The Curse of the Bermuda Triangle, and then another one called Alaska's Bermuda Triangle, or just the Alaska Triangle. Bruce has already appeared on that one, and he's been contacted by the producers of The Curse of Bermuda Triangle, and he'll be on there. Okay, um, there's one other new item. ABC was planning what sounded like a really interesting fictional series related to the Bermuda Triangle. The show's premise involved a family shipwrecked in a strange land, which exists in the Bermuda Triangle, who are forced to band together with a group of like-minded inhabitants from other periods of history to survive and somehow find a way home. Cool idea, but we also read that it was canceled before it ever got on the air. Yeah, unfortunately, putting it all together with uh, digital effects was a challenge. So uh, we hope it finds a way on the air at some point. It sounds like a cool idea. So now let's introduce Bruce Gernon. I should say that the reason I've been doing most of the talking uh, so far is that Bruce and I are co-authors of two books on the Bermuda Triangle, both of which uh, feature his experiences and the experiences of others who have uh, encountered the Bermuda Triangle phenomena. The first book was The Fog that came out in 2005 and is now out in a new ebook edition under the title Bermuda Triangle Legacy. Bruce and I wrote a second book published in 2017 called Beyond the Bermuda Triangle, uh, which has more stories of mysterious experiences uh, involving fog and more details about Bruce's theory of electronic fog. So let's welcome Bruce. Hi, Bruce. Bruce, we've been hey. in the Bermuda Triangle with this electronic <laughs> stuff. <laughs> 
Hey, Trish. Hey, congratulations on uh, your new podcast. I think it's going to be really popular in the future. Yeah, well, thanks great. for coming Thank on. Thank you. So when we last uh, talked a few months ago, Bruce, uh, uh, when we were both uh, being filmed in an episode of Expedition Unknown uh, about the Bermuda Triangle, you said it was your 39th appearance in a documentary. Now, how many are you up to now? <laughs> I, I, I haven't talked to you for a while. so. Oh, yeah, it's around uh, 45. Uh, 45. <laughs> that's, that's amazing. This okay. has become your full-time job, Bruce. Right. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, I did uh, four of them this year, so that's the most I've ever done in one year. Yeah, that's a lot. Okay, uh, let's go start at the beginning. So how old were you when you had your encounter with the, the Bermuda Triangle phenomena? Well, I was uh, 23 and, uh, and a half. Uh, what, were, what were you doing at the time that it happened? Uh, uh, my dad and I, and uh, we had a business partner. Uh, we had flown to uh, Fresh Creek, it's called, on Andros Island. Uh, in the Bahamas, right? Yeah, in the Bahamas. Mm -hmm. And Andros, that's the largest island there. And, and uh, We were in the process of uh, developing an, an island that was uh, a part of uh, Andros. It was on the side of the tongue of the ocean, they call it, where the... Where so you're, it, was a re, it was a resort, Bruce, that you were uh, going to start? Was that what the idea was? Yeah, we had been working on it for about a year, uh, getting it all set up and working a deal with yeah. the English Parliament, uh, controlled the Bahamas back then. So, first of all, describe your plane. Just for people who don't know anything about aeronautics, what kind of plane was it? It was a uh, single-engine uh, Beechcraft Bonanza. We, we previously had a uh, Piper Cherokee 6, six-passenger single-engine, and then in 1970, we, uh, we brought a new uh, Bonanza, A36, it's called uh, six-passenger, cruises close to 200 miles an hour. It's a very very stable airplane, and, and it's, it's in what's called the utility category. It's, it's real sturdy. It's almost aerobatic. What kind of electronics did you have on the uh, the plane? Well, uh, the electronics back then were, were uh, nothing compared to what they are today. Uh, but, uh, there were two yeah. forms of electronics on, on the plane. and uh, One was uh, called the uh, ADF, the automatic direction finder and that was basically just a dial with, with a needle and the needle would point to the station like we tuned in uh, Bimini to return the return flight from Andros and we were going to fly direct to Bimini they had a, a radio tower is what they need to have uh, we had planned on taking off early in the morning but it was uh, heavy uh, rain and thunderstorms and so we delayed it until three o'clock it finally started letting up uh, in the afternoon, but it was still overcast and, and just light rain. So back then there was no uh, television or radios on the entire island of Andros, so we really couldn't get a weather report. So what we used to do back then was uh, if we weren't sure whether the weather conditions were good or not, we would uh, go ahead and uh, take off and, and then we could get a better look at what the weather's like and decide if we want to continue. So we did that. And it was 1,500 feet overcast, and so we maintained 1,000 feet, and we flew over the interior of the island of Andros. And we're on a 
a northwesterly heading, and uh, we uh, weren't able to use any of the instruments except for the time and the compass and the, uh, until we got higher. Uh, so we stayed at a thousand, and then when we reached the shoreline, the western shoreline of Andros, uh, that's where the it. Uh, starts uh, at the Great Bahama Bank, the shallow water area that's in between Bimini and Andros. And uh, we could see the shoreline and uh, uh, could see offshore, I could see a cloud way offshore, maybe a few miles. And other than that, it was all clear weather. And I found out later that uh, the uh, weather we, uh, for Andrus on that day, we, we've got a chart of what the weather was, and uh, there were some uh, widely scattered medium-sized thunderstorms around South Florida, and uh, just one great big storm over the entire island of Andros. Uh, that's why we couldn't take off so early, because it was this huge storm over Andros for some reason, with the heat from the island probably. But anyway, it was clear blue skies out over the Great Bahama Bank. So I started to ascend as soon as we reached the shoreline and got beyond the overcast. And this cloud that I noted uh, happened to be directly in our path. And uh, it, it looked harmless, but it was very unusual and uh, much more unusual than I had realized. It, uh, it looked like what is what is called a lenticular cloud, but it was not a lenticular cloud. Yeah, lenticular clouds are like at ten thousand feet usually and above mountains, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, they're at least ten thousand, twenty thousand. And uh, this looked like a lenticular cloud because it had this smooth, silky edges to it. It wasn't puffy like cauliflower. Or like very oval shaped too, right? Yeah, it was oval shaped. Uh, is it oval or circular? Uh, Almost. I mean, it's elliptical. Elliptical. Yeah, that's the word I was right, looking yeah, for. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> maybe a mile long and uh, a thousand feet thick, and maybe a quarter or half mile wide. Hmm. It was like hovering 500 feet above the ocean, and uh, the winds were light and variable on that day, so it just appeared to be just sitting there. And uh, it looked harmless, so I, I wasn't worried about it. And, and I'm climbing up now from a thousand feet high, and I'm planning on going to ten thousand five hundred feet to level off. And when we got about uh, close to three thousand feet, I was able to contact the Miami radio. That's the uh, air traffic control station, and. Uh, I filed the flight plan to them, and at the same time, my dad, uh, he was the chief navigator, and he was, he was a pilot, too, and, uh, but I was pilot in command, and uh, dad was tuning in the, the two VORs. Uh, you do that so you can get a position, pretty close to exact position when you tune in two different stations, like Nassau and Miami, and you mm -hmm. them. The lines and, and where they meet, that's where you're at. And uh, 
and then he was tuning in the automatic di direction finder also and, uh, for Bimini. That's where we planned on going first, flying over Bimini, and then we'd make a turn over Bimini, and uh, just a slight turn northerly to, to go on to Palm Beach International. And uh, so we were in the process of doing that, and I wasn't really paying any attention to that little little lenticular looking cloud that we had flown over. And, and it was uh, under you, right, still? Yeah, well, yeah, but Behind. I didn't, didn't really notice it because uh, the weather report uh, Miami gave me says the, that there weren't any storms at all <coughs> in, uh, anywhere in between Andros and uh, Miami, there were no storms. So I, I wasn't too worried about any storms over the Bahamas anyway. He said there was some uh, fairly large storms over South Florida, but he thought I'd be able to circumnavigate them and make it to Palm Beach without a problem. And so after I signed off with him, I started looking around and then I see that this uh, cloud uh, this is right below the Bonanza. And uh, I wondered what the heck's going on. So I, I figured, well, maybe this is the birth of a thunderstorm. And I just happened to be flying over it when it was born. And and they can rise up at a, a thousand feet a minute, these uh, thunderstorms. And that's how fast uh, we were ascending thousand feet a minute and uh, what I didn't realize though that it was spreading out way faster than I had any idea because I, I was climbing up at 105 miles an hour and this cloud was already spreading out in front of me so it was, it was spreading out faster than 105 miles an hour and that didn't really register with me to say uh, so many so things to think about, you know, when you're flying, and that's not a normal one. But. So, Bruce, that was the lenticular cloud itself that was shooting these arms out and uh, following yeah. you up? Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, that's that's where it all started from. And uh, I'm climbing at 1,000 feet per minute, and then it caught up to me when I got about 4,000 feet, and I went inside it because it was climbing up faster than me now. It may have been climbing up like at 1,500 feet a minute. And uh, so I, I went inside it for about a half a minute uh, before it boosted me out with like the updrafts that it was creating. And when I was inside it, it was um, fairly smooth, uh, maybe a slight turbulence. And uh, visibility, though, was uh, uh, not maybe 100 feet at the most. Probably less than that, even. And, uh, so we uh, got clear of it, and uh, I got above it, and uh, I thought we'd be all right. But then uh, uh, a minute or so later, uh, it caught up to us again. And then I went back in it again. What did your dad say? Uh, well, the main. I can't remember exactly what we were talking about while this was going on. <laughs> we're both probably trying to figure out what's going on. This never has happened to us before. Uh -huh. <clears throat> inside many clouds, so but, uh, not like this. We didn't want to be inside it. And <laughs> when we got up 
could uh, getting close to our cruising altitude at ten thousand five hundred. Uh, he said before, just before we got to that altitude, he said maybe maybe we better turn around and, and go back to Andros. You know? And uh, I mean, sometimes that's a, a good idea uh, if you enter a thunderstorm to make a 180, uh, but you need to do it uh, immediately. And so you know, we've been inside this thing for like. Uh, Eight minutes or so, mm. and uh, I didn't really want to turn back because then I would have been flying inside this thing again, and it, it could have been a problem because we would have got way to have to go up to twenty thousand feet or so, and then you can get this uh, hypoxia is called. Where you, you can't yeah, the bonanza can't go that high, can it? Without, I mean, you didn't have oxygen in the plane. No, we didn't have any oxygen. Yeah. So that was the main reason why I, I didn't want to turn around. Uh, and I just had a feeling that it, we were probably going to break free of it pretty soon. I, said, I told him, well, let's just go a little bit more. But I was considering turning around if we couldn't get out of it because I didn't know, really didn't know what was in front of me. But I, and I did know what was behind me. But uh, we got to 10,500 and it's still having the problem going in and out of it. And, uh, and then finally, at uh, 11,500 feet, we broke free. And we're in clear blue sky. Mm. And, but I look around, you know, to the sides of me and behind me, and it was like I, I couldn't believe what I saw. It was, uh, it was a huge squall. Uh, was there that, lightning? Or anything like a typical? Uh, I couldn't see any at that time. Mm -hmm. and so somehow this little lenticular shaped cloud had spread out on either side of me at least 10 miles either side. So that's 20 miles I could see of it. And now it was probably at least 20,000 feet high. Wow. And you were at eleven five. Yeah. So that's where it stopped spreading, apparently. Oh. Where I, right where I popped out, and then I noticed another real strange thing about it was that uh, it it didn't have uh, scalloped edges like almost all squalls have. Uh, if you can see that much of the squall, you're going to notice some scallop edges on the storm, but this was perfectly smooth and as far as I could see in the shape of a semicircle and I thought that was kind of odd that it was so symmetrical like that almost like the, the lenticular flap was was just symmetrically shaped but at that point you thought you were free of it right and you're on your way yeah so I, I uh, started accelerating up to close to 200 miles an hour and maintain our heading uh, direct to Bimini. All the instruments were working still. And I, I more or less kind of forgot about that storm experience. Didn't really want to think about it anymore. <laughs> so now we're heading straight for Bimini. And then after 
uh, just a few more minutes. I, I look in front of me and now I see this another storm. Oh, I thought it was another th storm. <clears throat> Same shape as the other one, but now it was more like 40,000 feet up. God. And it had that same perfect semicircular shape as far as I could see. And then, you know, I thought, well, maybe I could, could uh, fly underneath it. And so I looked to see if there was what the ceiling was or the base of the clouds, which is usually a couple thousand feet. And uh, the, another strange thing was it didn't have a base. It was just, it was just laying right on the, on the floor of the ocean. Hmm. And so at which point did you realize this wasn't just a cloud? Uh, well, in a few more minutes, yes. So what I did was <laughs> I, uh, I went ahead and maintained our uh, a navigational heading that we had with our instruments. And, uh, uh, and we, we did a, a VOR check. Uh, we were... We were about 100 miles from Miami at this point. And, and so I entered into the storm and uh, it, it wasn't that intense as far as turbulence goes and, and, and there wasn't any precipitation either. Uh, but the, the visibility was uh, just uh, just over two miles. Uh, that's looking down anyway. I could, I could see the ocean, but looking forward maybe it was only a only a half mile of visibility. Uh, as we entered, then this lightning started flashing. And, and there weren't any lightning bolts, there were just flashes. And they would go on and off in a random pattern, rapid pattern. And so and the deeper I went, the more intense they became. You know, I penetrated at about a mile, almost two inside the storm and uh, it got to the point where the light, the lightning was so intense it, it would turn white and everything would be bright and I could see the ocean below me. But then when it turned off, it was pure black. Mm. I couldn't, couldn't see anything. It was so dark. Inside the cloud? Yeah. No sunlight at all? No. That's scary. Not when I got that deep in it. And so that kind of scared me a little bit. And uh, I didn't want to go any further and uh, fly direct to Bimini and fly through this because Bimini was still uh, like uh, 45 miles away. Mm. And, and so I made a sharp uh, left-hand turn heading due south and popped out of the storm. And as soon as I got out, I, I contacted the Miami radio because we were on a flight plan. And you had to file a flight plan. Well, you still do. But uh, when you're flying back and forth from the Bahamas, especially when you're flying from the Bahamas back to South Florida, you, they have this air defense zone that you're not allowed to penetrate without permission and being on radar identified and all that. Or they send jets after you. <laughs> so I contacted them and told them uh, what I was. I had deviated from my heading because of a storm, and I was. Gonna, I told them I was going to fly south and see if I could fly around it. 
and they acted like, well, no big deal. Uh, let them let us know. They said when uh, when I get around the storm. Could they see the storm on radar? Well, that's a good question. You know, I was just thinking of that just uh, yesterday. and uh, uh, It doesn't sound like they did if they were that blasé about it. I don't think they saw the storm because they would have told me, yeah, yeah, we see this big storm and uh, you're going to have a hard time getting mm-hmm. around. Yeah. They didn't say they acted like, oh, everything's fine. So I don't think this storm showed up on their radar. Hmm. Well, they weren't concerned about it if it did, and normally they would warn you that there's a storm out there, but uh, I'm pretty sure uh, they didn't see it. So, yeah, that's a great question. I'm going to keep that in mind when I write stories about this experience. I mean, that has been that had been my experience when I was taking flying lessons, that, you know, if, if they saw a system, they told you. yeah. Yeah, that's what they're there for, to give you any help they can as far as the weather is concerned. So and what tra- happened? Yeah, what hap- is traffic avoidance. So what happened, Bruce, when you got out of that cloud then? Okay, well, I signed off uh, for now with the, the Miami radio and uh, started heading south just along the edge of the storm and, and waiting for it to end. Yeah. And so... After flying for almost three minutes, uh, I I could see you know ten miles in front of me, and I could see that this storm curved back into the storm that I had just escaped right near Andros. God, you see, yeah. so now I realize that I'm inside this this strange formation of storms, and. Uh, so it's like a donut. You're inside of a donut? Yeah. Yeah, that's what it's like. Now, did you have any kind of weird gravity stuff happen? or? Well, that comes up in a little bit. <laughs> but I've got a, I've been, you know, I've been studying radar for almost 50 years now. I, I recently got a, a, a formation right off of Palm Beach that is circular, almost pretty identical to the size and shape of the storm that I went through, uh, but it's not the same storm. It's, uh, I was watching it for many hours, and it, it took uh, over two hours for this thing that I captured off of Palm Beach over the Gulf Stream. It took over two hours for the thing to make a semicircular, I mean, a full circle donut shape storm that you really wouldn't want to be inside the middle of it, but it had all kinds of scalloped edges, too. Mm. So it was... So it was different than what you went through. It was similar in shape, but not quite the same, and it it took over two hours to form, and and Uh this storm that uh, I experienced only took uh, 20 minutes to form. Jeez. So it's not not a normal type of storm. Mm Mm-hmm. And was it still reaching forty thousand feet up? Yeah, it was. So you couldn't you couldn't fly over it. What about going underneath it? No, I was laying right on the ocean. Mm. Yeah. So after flying almost three minutes, I noticed where the storm was connected on the bottom, but there was a big valley on the top, an opening. So apparently 
this storm forward, formed just offshore of Andros and then spread out in this circular shape and it met on the opposite end, which would be like 100 miles uh, offshore of uh, Miami. And so after I saw the valley, I thought, well, right, I'll, I'll shoot through that opening. And uh, it was aiming right toward uh, Miami. So that, that felt good. But then these formations on the sides of the storm turned into anvil heads, they're called. Right. It's like a big overhang. And then, so there was one on each side. And then the anvil heads connected on the top. And mm. so this happened fairly rapidly. Uh, uh, I decided to go ahead and try to go through the valley, and then it turns into this huge tunnel. Um, still aiming for it, and that, that's when my dad asked me uh, if I was going to fly through that tunnel. <laughs> What was your other passenger doing? Was he freaking out? Uh, he, he, uh, he freaked out uh, when we were going in and out of the clouds. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he, he was... Uh, he he wasn't was, also a pilot, was he? No, he wasn't a pilot. But then he calmed down after we broke free of that. And then he probably got pretty shook up when we saw the lightning, too. But, uh, but we weren't in there very long, so he, he seemed okay for now, but... Uh, uh, so I aimed for this uh, tunnel now, and the, and the tunnel was really wide, like uh, one, two thousand feet maybe at first, but it, it was fairly rapidly getting smaller. And, and uh, so I, I noticed its center of it was around ten thousand feet. So I uh, started uh, descending, and and I and I went to full power because I, I could see that the tunnel was getting smaller, and I knew I. I shouldn't be doing this. I mean, it kind of looked like it was like 10 miles long. But uh, I guess Dad agreed with me, and we both felt the, we were trapped in, inside this storm. And if we were going to get out, this was like probably our only chance. And so the opening was narrowing? Is that what you yeah, said? Yeah, uh -huh. narrowing. And, uh, hmm. When I entered it, it was maybe... Uh, Five or seven hundred feet in diameter, and it appeared to be t at least ten miles long. But uh, something incredible happened. This is when the time comes in to, uh, as a major factor. Uh, as soon as the uh, airplane penetrated the tunnel, it, something really strange happened uh, to the visual appearance. Uh, these puffs of clouds instantly formed and they were like hovering off the walls of the tunnel. Hmm. And each cloud was uh, about the size of a school bus. Jeez. Uh, they were darker than uh, the walls of the tunnel were, were kind of really white silvery color because the sun was shining brightly through them at uh, 3.30 in the afternoon. and uh, So at this point, you'd been up for 30 minutes? 
Yeah, yeah, we uh, exactly mm-hmm. thirty minutes when we entered the tunnel, and uh, and a hundred miles uh, eastern of uh, Miami, mm-hmm. and um, so at the speed I was going, it, it uh, should have taken me uh, a few minutes, three minutes, to reach the other end of the tunnel, but it only took around twenty seconds. Hmm. And this is this is when time was starting to, to change space time. I believe I was actually seeing the fabric of time. That's why the, the wow. appearance of it was so unusual. And and, the, and these clouds that formed were all in a line, but the line swirled all around the tunnel, all the way to the other end, and and, and it was slowly rotating. Counterclockwise. Hmm. The, you mean the opening in the tunnel was? No, the tunnel was uh, stable, but it, apparently the, uh, the the line, the puffy little clouds. Oh, the little clouds. They were slowly rotating counterclockwise. Huh. And didn't you have uh, gravitational? Uh, well, that's when, yeah. Right when I reached the mouth of the tunnel, only only twenty six minutes. I mean, only twenty seconds later. After entering, I reached the other end of the tunnel, which originally was 700 feet in diameter, and now it's down to 30 feet in diameter. When I and and I know that's where the diameter was because the, the wingspan was 33 feet on the airplane, and, and wow. I scraped the edges of the tunnel with the wingtips, mm. went through the tunnel, and uh, entered the, the clear blue sky, and I. I looked behind me, and there were like strange contrails forming on the wingtips, leading back to the tunnel. And then I watched the tunnel uh, collapse, and and now it, it formed like a slit, and the slit was rotating clockwise because uh-huh. I'm looking from the other angle now. And then two things that happened at the same time: the, the clear blue sky instantly disappears and that's when we felt the strange sensation of uh, zero gravity but it, it also felt like we were hydroplaning like we were skimming along wow <laughs> at the same time zero gravity and it lasted about 20 seconds or not even that 10 seconds did anything in the plane float uh, was it weightless? Anything? No, everything was pretty much uh, strapped down. And when, uh-huh. when you're in the plane, you, uh, you want to be prepared for zero gravity in case you hit some real bad turbulence. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this was like a sensation. I mean, we could we could feel it. You know? uh, and then uh, I look at my instruments. To check where I'm at, I, I figured I was like 90 miles east of Miami, and uh, the, the electronic instruments uh, weren't working well. And I didn't, I wasn't sure what was going on, so I asked my dad to give me uh, it's called a position fix, and so he normally could get one of the get our exact position within uh, 10 seconds or so. He fumbles around with the instruments, and uh, he says something's wrong. 
and then we realized the the electronic instruments were all malfunctioning, and and even the compass, the the antique wet compass, was slowly rotating counterclockwise, and and we were going straight, not making any turns. And we we're heading uh, right for Miami, uh, and uh, so I maintained that direction, and and I slowed down to the maneuvering speed of 180 miles an hour because I wasn't sure what was going on because there was there was no more visibility. Hmm. Clear blue sky disappeared, and uh, everything was uh, a dull gray, maybe a little yellow tint to it. So you couldn't see anything underneath you either. Like the ocean, or really? Uh, I I may have been able to see the ocean, but it just it didn't look normal. Mm. Uh, everything was kind of fuzzy. That's why I call this the electronic fog because I've talked to so many people that have had this experience with the electronic fog and, and been able to escape it. And, uh, so I figured that was a good name for it. And uh, it sounds almost like a conscious entity. You know no. what I mean? Like it has a certain consciousness. Yeah, there could be some uh, something related to that. Uh, but you created it. You were able to get onto uh, the radio, though. Your everything else was out. Electronic equipment was out, but you still had radio contact, right? Yeah. So I I got on the radio and uh, contacted. Uh, Miami radio and uh, told him our situation and uh, I guess he could tell by my voice uh, I wasn't exactly sure of our, my location you know which is not good <laughs> I should be like 85 miles uh, east of Miami though and uh, so he he tried to find me on his radar and he says no I can't find him and we had a radar uh, instrument called the transponder back then and we were using that uh, to try to get them to find us and that apparently that was not working either so they couldn't find us and and so at this point this is where my dad went into a state of panic and, and <laughs> started yelling and screaming at the radar controller what do you mean you can't find us and and, uh, and then uh, our passenger Chuck he he became uh I, I suppose it was nauseous, uh, would be the word. He, uh, but he couldn't speak well. Uh, he was trying to tell me something, but I couldn't understand anything he was saying. Mm. So I had to block him out of my mind uh, and concentrate on flying the airplane because he was gone. <laughs> well, apparently, this electronic fog can do that to people. I mean, I've you know, heard of one people that passed out that have been in my it has different effects on different people. And so I, I took the mic back to my dad and calmed him down. And then, and the, and then the radar controller switches. Well, he was the air traffic controller. So he had radar equipment, but not as good as the radar controller, which is a separate radar room. And then so he, he switched me over to their frequency. And they, they couldn't find me on the radar either. And uh, it's like there was radio silence uh, because mm. there, there was other people, planes, airliners, I suppose, talking on the 
radio, but I guess they heard this and so everybody's probably wondering, hmm, what's going to happen to those guys? Jeez. So now we've been flying for uh, 33 minutes. So according to time, we should be like uh, 85 or 80 miles east of Miami. And uh, then uh, something uh, incredible happens, but but first the radar controller comes on the back on the radio and and he's really excited. And uh, he says he's got an airplane directly over Miami Beach. And uh, I tell them, no, that's that's impossible. We're still at least 80 miles east. But then an incredible thing happens again. I, I call it an electronic dissipation of this fog. Uh, it formed lines parallel to the direction of our flight all around the airplane. Well, they, they appeared to be lines at first, but then they cracked open. Hmm. Yeah. Lines of clouds, you mean? or No, just openings. It was openings in the fog. Huh. And it cracked open, and I could see the clear blue sky. Jeez. It was like ribbons, right? Yeah. The fog had turned into long ribbons running uh-huh. par- running parallel to the plane. Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. And they weren't perfectly straight ribbons. They were kind of had bends in them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So within 10 seconds, the, the cracks got wider and wider until all the cracks were gone. And yeah. and where were you at that point? Well, the, the radar controller was right. I was, uh, I was right over... Miami Beach. How is that? Huh. How is that possible? Though? Well, it's not really. I looked at my watch and uh, I was been flying thirty three minutes and twenty seconds. Now, what's the, how long does that flight usually take you? Well, usually we don't go to Miami. Mm-hmm. We we go to Palm Beach International, and that that flight takes like an hour and twenty minutes. Mm-hmm. But this flight took what much less time because of this. Space-time warp. See, when I entered yeah. that, I was 100 miles east of Miami. So, so three minutes and 20 seconds later, I'm directly over Miami. Wow. So that means I'd have to be going like 2,000 miles an hour. God. Which the plane could not possibly do. <laughs> no, the plane's at maximum is what, a couple hundred? Right, at the most. So, yeah. like, when yeah. you're at that point where you're hydroplaning, that might have been the the point when like you're being displaced in time and space and just like, uh, so rather than the plane flying, the plane was just moved in, in space rather than uh, in time, rather than flying at that speed. It was like the space collapsed or something. Yeah, that's, that's what the Professor Parrish says. Uh, yeah. He's and he's, the, he's a meteorologist, right, who you work with? And a physicist. He was, uh, yeah, he was uh, a meteorologist for the Army, I think. Yeah. yeah. And so he thinks I made that, it would be 90-mile trip because the tunnel was like 10 miles long. He thinks I did that instantly. Yeah, right. Hmm. And, I, and I'd be traveling hundreds of thousands of miles an hour. <laughs> God. So, but I, I don't agree with him quite. But don't, I do and I don't, but it's like... What about the 20 seconds in the tunnel? I mean, it should have taken three minutes. Uh-huh. So and t- I think time was changing as I went through that tunnel. 
Hmm. Well, I don't know how it worked. He knows better than me. He claims that somehow when I went through the tunnel, that's when time was doing something. And when I came out of the tunnel, instantly, I'm over Miami. And so, actually, I'm, I'm not over Miami, though, when I came out. He, he thinks I was uh, 10 miles offshore of Miami when I came. Hmm. And then... But, but it happened to you. Where do you think you were? Well, well, I was in this electronic fog, and it would take uh, three minutes uh-huh. to reach Miami Beach and at the speed I was going. And so that, that's what happened uh, when the, the fog electronically dissipated. See, I, mm-hmm. I traveled those 10 miles at normal speed, but the time-space warp took place in the tunnel and at the mouth of the exit of the tunnel. Hmm. So, so, Bruce, why, how did you survive? Why, why didn't you crash? I mean, so many of these planes and uh, ships have vanished, uh, crashed uh, when they've encountered this uh, Bermuda Triangle phenomena. But uh, you survived. What? What? What happened? How did you? How did you do it? How did you? Keep flying <laughs> instead of freaking out. <laughs> Well, fate and luck is, has a lot to do with it. But I was only in this electronic fog for uh, three minutes. Yeah. So what happens to these other pilots? Like, and there's one just happened right here off of Palm Beach. Uh, Ken Simmons, his name is. The, and uh, he was a veterinarian. And, uh, and he had a, a plane similar to the one I used to have, like the Bonanza. And uh, he, he took off from... Uh, Palm Beach, and uh, when he got uh, offshore about 20 miles over the Gulf Stream, he encountered uh, two storms side by side, very similar to the one that I flew through uh, mm. the And so they've got this all on radar nowadays, too. And, and uh, Professor Paris is, is in the process of researching that for me right now. I mean, that particular That particular instance? Flight, yeah, uh-huh. He's got a lot, lot of data now that we never really had with other air, uh, disappearances. Yeah. But this guy didn't. His plane didn't crash, did it? This vet. Oh, yeah. it, it crashed and uh, oh it disappeared. Oh. They couldn't find it in any. They couldn't find anything. Uh, pieces. Oh. Of but they, they had it radar. I mean, he went straight down into the ocean. Mm-hmm. He did. Mm-hmm. A, a graveyard spiral, which happens to a lot of the hmm. that uh, crash, and, uh, because yeah. spatial disorientation, and and we've got it all on radar. He he he's aiming for the to go in between the two storms, and I believe that the it, it, the tunnel probably collapsed. Uh-huh. He got to it, and and my theory is, and this took me thirty years to come up with this theory. <laughs> that tunnel collapses, it emits a sphere of this electronic fog. And, you know, sphere could be the size uh, 100 or 300 feet diameter. And hmm. it uh, attaches itself to the aircraft hmm. or the vessel. And so the, the tunnel collapses. The tunnel attaches itself or the, you mean no, the... No, no, the tunnel collapses and disappears, but then the this electronic fog can last for many hours. Mm-hmm. And it, it can go up higher if there's updrafts, or it can go down to the surface if there's downdrafts. 
And so I believe that's what happened to him. He he, he was flying fine. He he was climbing up uh, to he reached uh, eight thousand feet, and then he got close to the storm, the two storms, mm-hmm. and then all of a sudden he uh, starts doing strange things with the airplane. You know, he he goes through a series of uh, more than a dozen turns actually. Wow. He's a pretty good pilot. And, uh, so he was trying to get out. Yeah, that's what I think. Uh, he was changing altitudes. He was uh, changing headings. He went through all different headings. And, uh, see, what he should have done was, and this is what I try to tell other pilots, if anything like this happens to you, what you do is you just make the classic 180-degree turn. Even if your instruments aren't working, you can use a clock and you turn a bank instrument to, I believe it's 15 degrees, and just time it for one minute, and then you'll be turn, heading the opposite direction. Huh. You don't have electronics or anything. <clears throat> and he didn't do that. But he, he probably couldn't believe what was going on. And they got the, uh, the radio transmissions recorded, too. Now, was he by himself? No, he was with his wife and... Uh, you're gonna. You're not gonna like this. Two beautiful. Oh, oh right, I remember this. Yeah, two, two golden retrievers. Two golden retrievers were in the uh, cockpit. Jeez. Yeah. yeah and, uh, so, and at one point, uh, they're trying to help him because uh, they knew he was. He called and said he was something going wrong. And, uh, and at one point, he actually says that his, his instruments were going wacky. Hmm. Uh, yeah. Okay. So, so after he was in it. For I have to see how many minutes I think he was in it. Uh, probably five minutes or so. Hmm. The, the the spatial disorientation hit him. That's kind of like what hit uh, our passenger when we were in the electronic cloud. Uh huh. He was he was so dizzy that years later. Of course, he never forgot the fight either. But years later, he told all his grandchildren that told me not too long ago that he used to tell. They used to think he was crazy until they read my book. And <laughs> he used to tell his grandchildren that when he looked at his watch, the minute arms and hour arms they were spinning. Hmm. So, Bruce, when this happened, this was December 1970. You didn't know anything about the Bermuda Triangle, right? Well, no, not not the word Bermuda Triangle or, or they had no, he, had names like the Voodoo Sea or Limbo of the Lost. Yeah, uh, but uh, I did know uh, about uh, a strange storm in the same area that one of my mentors, uh, Air Force Colonel, that uh, taught me a lot about flying. Uh, he he and his brother. We're in two separate airplanes flying from uh, Palm Beach to uh, Exuma Island. And they encountered a strange storm that they, they would ne- could never forget. They used to love to talk about it sometimes. At, the, at lunch, when I used to work with them. And uh, they would tell that story, and I could tell was, they would get all excited that something really unusual happened. And, and, and Colonel Don, his name was uh, McKinney, uh, he used to say, it reminded him of the atom bomb because it had hmm. a strange ring around it. As the storm rose up really fast, see, I never really saw it from the outside. 
I was like on the inside. Right. And as it rose up really fast, he said there's a strange ring, like a roll cloud, I think they call it. Hmm. The, the atomic bomb does the same thing when it shoots up. There's like a ring that goes up with it. And he actually saw the Japanese atomic bomb from the air, and his, he was the commander of a B-29, and he backed up General Doolittle that he that actually dropped the atom bomb. He was the backup B-29 with another atom bomb just in case Doolittle did so, yeah, that, I knew that was out there, but I wasn't thinking about that until after I had that experience. Yeah. So when you got, when you finally landed in Miami Beach, were you, what were you feeling? <laughs> were you shaken? Were you? Uh, yeah, well, kind of another unusual thing happened when the uh, radar controller uh, signed me off because I, I told him, you know, I'm fine now. Yeah. Uh, I'll sign off. He didn't want to let me go, but I, I just uh, didn't need him anymore. So I, I said that I can make it back to Palm Beach from Miami. And so there was a large thunderstorm over Palm Beach. Oh, God. Or not Palm Beach, wait a minute, uh, Fort Lauderdale, in between Miami and Palm Beach. There was a large thunderstorm that was maybe 20 miles in diameter or at least that much, and uh, it was right over the, the center of the, right over the shoreline. So I had to uh, descend from 10,000 feet, and uh, I flew out west over the Everglades. I flew out west uh, maybe 25 miles and trying to get around the storm. And so then there's another great big storm over the Everglades. God. To the right, and and so the two storms were connected. Gosh, That's like the ones with the tunnel that I flew through. But this <laughs> they were determined to get you, Bruce. <laughs> yeah. This connection was different, though. There was where they where they connected. Uh, there was like a uh, an opening down low hmm. where it was clear, and they weren't connected. And but it formed like a bridge, and so it was kind of like flying under a bridge. I had I had to climb. Uh, descend down to 500 feet to get under the bridge that connected the two storms and then come out on the other side and go on to Palm Beach. So so now I had actually flown another, oh, maybe uh, 30 miles or so out of the way. And so then we landed at Palm Beach and, and as soon as we touched down, I checked the time and so now uh, 47 minutes had gone by. Wow. I said, what? That, that, that didn't make sense at all. But, but I, had re I realized that uh, something really significant happened when I had this experience. And, and so I, I, I knew I would commit it to memory for a long time until I discovered exactly what happened, because it was unexplainable uh, when I first the plane didn't use as much uh, jet fuel, did it, that it was supposed to? That's right, yeah. That was the idea of my uh, my physics professors. I started telling people uh, about a year later, I was telling uh, important people. I had two uh, physics teachers in college, and, uh, and they were really interested in it. And one of them came up with the idea, you still have the gas receipts. I said, yeah, I'll look and see. And so, yeah, all the other flights, we'd always burn uh, 
around uh, 40 gallons. And, and so this fight, uh, we, we burned like it was uh, like 28 gallons, 20, 20 or so. Yeah. You got a free ride. Yeah. At least that's really weird, though. Maybe that's, that's a lot less fuel. Yeah. <laughs> so we want to uh, talk again uh, in a couple of weeks or so. And, uh, or next Sunday. Or maybe if you're available next Sunday, we could do it again for, you know, doing talking about phenomena. I know you just uh, finished reading that book and you got some questions yeah. you'd like to talk about. Right. I'm going to ask you a bunch of questions. Yeah, time. right. We'll, yeah, we'll okay. Turn, That'd the, be good. turn the tables. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds good. Well, this has been great, Bruce. Yeah. We really appreciate your time. Yeah. Okay. So, well, thanks so much, Bruce. And we'll talk to you this week. <laughs> talk to you later. Okay, okay. Thanks again. Bye. Bye. Thanks for joining the Mystical Underground. Listen to the podcast at www.themysticalundergroundpodcast.com. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Follow Trish and Rob on Instagram at Trish and Rob McGregor. Follow the podcast on Twitter at The Mystic Cast. Visit the blog site, blog.synchrosecrets.com, or visit the book site, phenomena111.com. Until next week. Thank you for listening, and stay mystical. <laughs> Meanwhile, you can hear dogs eating in the background. <laughs> it just makes it more real. <laughs> we're not we're not setting in a studio. This yeah, is this is. Well, the reason I fed them is because I went in my my office and all the cat food was gone. So uh, I oh, oh, they had raided. They raided the cat food. <laughs> He's smiling here. <laughs>